250th episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host and producer of the Happy Hour, Olga Peters, and yay! Regular contributor, Representative Emily Kornheiser is also here. Hello, Emily. Hi, Olga. Happy 250th episode. I know, and it's happening uh, the week of Thanksgiving, so the week that many people uh, uh, give to gratitude. So Mm -hmm. I'm grateful to be here with you today, too, Emily. (laughs) And also grateful to welcome back one of our favorite repeat guests, Mara Collins, who is the executive director of the Vermont Housing Finance Agency, which many people will also refer to as VHFA. Hey, so glad you can be with us today, Mara. Thank you so much for having me on this momentous occasion. You all don't look a day over 249 episodes. Oh, <laughs> that's so sweet. Thank you. Oh, wow. So um, you were one of our early guests, Maura, and I'm wondering, how does it feel being here at number 250? Well, uh, I will say you all create such a welcoming, warm environment that it feels far less intimidating than the first time when we met, where I was very nervous to count my ums and errs and all that. But um, I, I think you know that I can bring every conversation back to housing. In fact, my family will tell you that at cocktail parties, when I'm struggling to make connections with people... They're amazed at how I can lead any conversation back to the (laughs) need and support for safe, affordable, decent housing. So I'm happy to bring that to this conversation because I am a one hit wonder. But before I launch into all the housing conversations I love having, I guess I'm curious, how, how did you all get to be 250 episodes old? Like, what was the the spark of the idea that started the Montpelier happy hour. Mm. So I think, and I'm, you know, I wonder if we even have the same creation story. Mm. So I'd love to excited to see what Olga thinks of my creation story. Um, so Olga was a radio host on a local commercial radio station when I was running for office. And before I ran for office, I did lots of community stuff as a person does in their community. That's sort of why they wind up being the person who runs for office. And so I would occasionally go on the show with Olga to talk about this new thing happening in town and always enjoyed talking to her. And then as I, um, when I was elected and sort of getting ready to serve, I was thinking a lot about how to better communicate all of the things that happened in Montpelier back down to Brattleboro, because that's sort of four of my values as a community legislator, um, and I think really important. And so I wrote to Olga and said, hey, can I just have like a regular spot, like once every two weeks, you know, and this is like commercial radio. So it was like, can I have a regular five minute spot Mm -hmm. um, once every two weeks to talk about what's happening in Montpelier? And she said, sure. And then like three days later, she made the very, very great decision to leave that very mediocre job and find a better path for herself. But we were both still really excited about doing this spot together. And so we jumped right in and Olga did all the hustle to find us a spot on the community radio station. 
And Olga, you had been, tell me more about what your background is. I come across Emily Moore in the State House, and so I'm familiar with what she'd been doing, but what did bring you to this point? And is your creation story match up with Emily's? I think, yes, I think it's pretty close. Um, well done, us. <laughs> um, so I'll start with, with uh, how I got here, which was very serendipity. I had actually been living overseas, uh, came home, needed a job, and had no intention. I always call myself an accidental journalist because I had no intention of going into journalism, but I needed a job. <laughs> Imagine how that works. And Jeff and Potter, who is the editor of the Commons, happened to go to the same high school as I did. Good old you know, Southern Vermont networking. And he gave me a part-time job, which turned into a full-time job. So that's how I started building my journalism chops. And then probably, what was it, 2016, I think, Chris Lenoir had been hosting Green Mountain Mornings on the commercial radio station that Emily mentioned. He decided to take another job. And so I called him up and said, would this be worth doing? And I was hired. And there were parts of the job I loved so much. I loved the community conversations. I loved that people could hear the guests directly. It's one of my favorite things about radio. And so I fell in love with that aspect of the job, even though I ended up leaving it eventually. And Yes, Emily was coming in and we were having good conversations. And one thing I respected about her was there are so many people I interview who I understand are often afraid to put their stake in the ground and, and really be forthright about their opinions or their thoughts. But in my opinion, that's what we need in these difficult conversations around community. We need people who are willing, even if it's messy, even if they might be wrong, to, to keep moving the conversation forward and to keep bringing people to the table. And so, yeah, we had, I had, I think I called you, Emily, after I left the job and said, well, unfortunately, um, you'll have to talk to someone else about being on the, the radio. But I'm bummed because I really wish we could have these deeper conversations and really help people understand some of what's behind the policy and, and how we get to these policies, because I notice that a lot of people get frustrated with government when they don't understand it. Mm -hmm. And from there, we, the Montpelier Happy Hour was, was born. And so Olga does all the tech stuff and I tend to do the guest communicating with guests and finding guests, but not always. Um, and sometimes we go into like deep strategic planning mode and we map out three months of episodes at a time. And sometimes we text each other at 8 a.m. on a Monday and say, oh, my God, what are we going to do for this week? <laughs> um, but when we started, we had this real commitment to like going deep enough and in sometimes boring enough that we were really getting the story behind stuff. Because I knew coming into the legislature that so much of what happens is governed by these stories about how things work that might have nothing to do with reality, but we just repeat them to each other so many times in this lovely, 
building, this lovely old building that they start to become truth. And so one of the things I really appreciate about you coming on, Maura, um, is that you're always like, sure, but what about this? Mm-hmm. Um, this is actually like, you know, I have data about this and I have stories about this and you're never afraid to sort of open up those like tried and true beliefs about why we're in the situation that we're in in Vermont and how Vermont works. And you do it with such respect and kindness. And so we've been having you on since the early days because housing is one of the most important and intractable issues that we're always going to be working with in Vermont. And so it's been a fun, it's been fun having you around too. Yeah, Maura, if I remember correctly, the first time I met you at least was in Bellows Falls at a community meeting and we we sat in one of the committee rooms of the town hall and recorded our episode. That was fun. That, that was it. And um, I guess, yes. Uh, and it is one of those things I, I am often asked by the media. Well, I will say two years ago, earlier in the pandemic, I would be asked by the media in sometimes a bit of a breathless tone, like, oh my gosh, what, how did COVID break the housing market? What just (laughs) happened? And I had to swallow some of my personal reactions to that because I wanted to say, and I did not, (laughs) well, you weren't paying attention to the last 20 years when we told you we were heading full throttle toward a brick wall with lack of development and increasing unaffordability. And we saw this coming. And to your point, Emily, about wanting to go deeper with conversations, I think that there are often times that subject matter experts in the hollows of their own office and space can really um, see things that are worth the rest of us paying attention to. And sometimes that messaging is hard to get out beyond our own industry or sector. And so I I do appreciate opportunities like this to speak to not a housing audience, but a community-based audience and a statewide audience. Um, Little known fact, speaking of origin stories, is that I do not have a degree in uh, urban planning or finance or anything that makes me qualified to run a housing finance agency but um, I was a journalism background. I, I was a journalism major. Um, and that was just a incessant curiosity that I had for the world and people and what makes them tick and how things work. And um, as the baby in my family, I think I was constantly looking at people older and wiser than me. And I just wanted to figure out how they got to know what they knew. And I think that that is the service. So I have a a very deep core value uh, for journalism and for media. And um, even in the state it is today, I think there are um, things that we need to to grow from. And and so I, I just say that I think that it is a service when you go deeper in conversations and and I'm sure we can go deeper in some of the housing conversations. But if you'll if you'll forgive me for being playing journalist just for another minute um, and interviewing you, um, I guess I'm curious. You've you've talked about one of your favorite guests, um, <laughs> but beyond that, 
Tell me about some of the memorable episodes, not, you know, your favorite, but just something that you remember from some of the last couple of years. I mean, we're saying 250 episodes, but is there a year that you remember the starting? We started in January of 2019. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So over the and past... So so we were pre-pandemic. Um, we were operating for a whole year pre-pandemic. At that point, we were just community radio. Yep. And then added the podcast when Olga had the patience and fortitude. And I'm so grateful for both of those things to figure out how the podcasting part worked. And then when the pandemic started, we went onto the Zoom as everyone did and realized, oh, wait. We can um, see each other. <laughs> we can see each other. And our community TV station is desperate for footage right now because they can't go anywhere to film anything and so we're now broadcast on every um, public access station in the state pretty much mm -hmm. i didn't and realize so that we have this very funny mix of like i think the podcast itself and sometimes the facebook feed is watched by like a very much like vermont poly politic universe mm -hmm. and then the community access i think is mostly watched by like random people at two in the morning and then Sorry, that's my experience of who talks to me about that saw the show when I'm at the grocery store. I'm sure other people watch it at other times. And then um, the radio yeah. is just like, it's downtown Brattleboro folks listen to that. So it's like this very, very funny mixed audience. Mm -hmm. um, but memorable episodes, um, two things really stand out for me, I think. Um, one is when we were really like in the beginning months of the pandemic, feeling so aware of um, the like pandemic as a portal to understanding really important things um, to what was being revealed and feeling just like so grateful to be in the thick of it with Olga and having these like weekly moments of reflection to say, what are we learning in this time that we are living in? This is wild. And there's so much richness about what's being realized in these moments by society, by us individually, all of that. So like all of those, those sort of first few months of episodes after the pandemic came are incredibly rich memories to me. And then another one is Kelly Green. Um, mm -hmm. I was going to mention Kelly. Um, yeah. It's a very... Um, powerful and skilled public defender and her town meeting moderator um, has come on a couple times. And Kelly's sort of like, you know, a little bit Vermont famous. She's been on Rumble Strip recently talking about the Taylor Swift movie with Erica Heilman. Um, she was in another, she was in another VPR um, show talking about town meeting, but she just, I like, we sobbed our way through that whole show together. And I just felt like we were all really seeing and hearing each other and feeling the grief of what so many Vermonters go through mm -hmm. um, in a pretty profound way. So those are like two big things that stand out to me. Olga, what about you? Yeah, it for me, the experience, especially as a host, I I often approach these conversations with a lot of curiosity, especially because there's a lot of times they're out of my immediate wheelhouse or there are subjects that I haven't been covering for the newspaper. And 
so I always have that sense of curiosity and a little bit of fear, like, okay, this train could come off the tracks at any moment, uh, depending on how this goes. So every episode feels new in that way. Uh, and everyone feels a little different that way. I think for me, what keeps me coming back, whether or not it's memorable, is I am always so heartened when we start a conversation and the guest is feeling maybe a little nervous or they're worried about saying the wrong thing. And by the end of the conversation, we've just had a really good conversation and the time mm -hmm. flies and we learn things we didn't know. And that to me is just exciting. And it's also an honor to be able to hold that space. As far as memorable conversations go, I think, um, everyone who knows me knows names go out of my head. It was during election season and we reached out to as many Wyndham County candidates as we could. Oh. And all the Republicans said no, with the exception of Rick Morton, Rick Morton. Thank you. And I, who's the Republican County chair in Wyndham County and um, ran against me one election cycle, ran for the Senate this last election cycle. He's sort of perpetually on the ballot. Yes. And what I really, he, he said a lot of things. Um, I think we still have a screenshot of our faces when he was talking about um, uh, selling baby parts after abortions. At the same time, one thing I am so grateful for that conversation and why it stands out is it reminds me that in today's news cycle, it's so easy to get into your own echo box. Mm -hmm. And just talk to people who agree with you or just talk to people who uh, you already kind of share the same opinions. And he just reminded me the importance of not doing that and trying to find people who maybe we don't know or we haven't talked to or may not agree with us. And that to me just is really important for community conversations. Yeah, I... Um... I'll say you just touched on, again, I can turn every conversation back to housing, but um, I spend so much of my time thinking about placemaking mm -hmm. and how with our choices of our land use patterns and the structures that we choose to preserve and the history that they embody, as well as the structures we choose to build new and how we do that and how we think about universal design and accessibility, how we think about community spaces, how our homes and spaces have evolved and changed, especially in the last three years, mm -hmm. where now the phrase work-life balance doesn't resonate anymore, and instead it's just life, and uh, we are working where we live and living where we work and everything in between. Um, and so while I'm focused a lot on placemaking, I appreciate communicators who can focus on sense-making. Mm -hmm. And when you were talking about the early days of this show and how pre-pandemic you were trying to dig deeper into policy conversations and understanding what, what was happening in the community, and then mid-pandemic, early pandemic, you really were trying to make sense of this very rapidly changing environment and what we all 
needed to do. And so that, again, is a powerful tool and one that is not often appreciated or understood or uh, supported in our communities. Mm -hmm. And, And I would say the same for placemaking and being very intentional about what we do. And I guess um, I'm, I get really hung up on intentionality because I think that it is important to both be reflective and, and be intentional about what we're doing. And um, what I, there's no evaluate, evaluation of how this all has gone so far, but at this point, what do you hope you have done 250 episodes in. What has your intention been so far to leave Vermont and your listeners and viewers with? What do you hope you've done? You know, there are two other pieces of sort of how we structured the show that really stand out to me that I think helped me answer this question. So one is um, during, we try to take a little bit of a summer break and during that little summer break, we pre-record, um, we've been pre-recorded or pre-recording ourselves just reading aloud. And um, one year we just read the constitutional, the Vermont Constitution aloud. We've read important court decisions aloud. We've read gubernatorial inauguration speeches aloud. Um, and then another piece, which I'm gonna tie these two pieces together, and even to what you said about housing, Mora. Um, at some point, Olga's like, you can't let the lobbyists come on the show anymore. Like they never, they never like go off their scripts, right? Like they have a thing they need to say and they're trained to say it and it's just boring for everyone. Um, She said it like way more gently than that because she's a much gentler person than I am. And so, (laughs) um, and one of the things that I love about Vermont And there are a lot of things that I'm frustrated with about Vermont for one of the things that I really love about Vermont is how profoundly class diverse, even a single street can be. Mm -hmm. And what that means for our ability to have conversations with each other and to like keep on facing each other and having to keep on facing each other. And the thing that I hope folks have really gotten from the show, whether they listened once on Facebook or whether they're like, you know, I have a friend who listened to it whenever he's chopping wood, the podcast version. Um, (laughs) But that we can sort of listen deeply to a deep dive. Um, And that real like practice that people have sort of like learned from the practice that we're engaged in, that issues are more complex, that history matters. and that there's always there's always something underlying whatever the stories we're telling ourselves are. Mm-hmm. And so I think I hope that some at least everyone who listens got that about some piece of the great puzzle that we are all living in. Mm. Thank you, Emily. I, uh, I for me, I always hope in a conversation, especially if it's on a topic that we've been talking about a lot, like say housing, that we will able to we will be able to bring something to light that maybe people haven't thought about or maybe something they didn't understand and now they see it in a new perspective and it helps click their their understanding of something and the reason i always hope for that is nothing happens in a vacuum that's one reason we like going back and reading something like the vermont constitution or the the inaugural addresses 
the same time, we treat so many of our systems and our beliefs and our stories as set in stone. Mm -hmm. And we forget that we as humans created these things, whatever they be. And therefore, we can create something new if we are willing to do that. And that's always the, the kind of hope that I'm hoping will kind of crack through people's normal ways of being in our conversations. I also have a hope for it for myself, which is mm. quite selfish, <laughs> which is that I, um, I'm terrified that the longer I stay in the legislature, the more complicit I'll become in these stories. I think that's a healthy fear to have. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and like I might hold it like a little too strongly sometimes, but yes, I think it's a really healthy fear to have. And so I hope that this show keeps me honest and curious and digging in to the stories behind and to not be making the assumptions that are so easy to make in what becomes a bubble, despite, you know, my very best efforts. And so I'm really hoping for that um, from this show. You know, I was, um, Olga, what you just said about sort of the systems we make that we can remake and think about differently. Um, someone from, I was recently in a presentation from the Vermont Futures Project who um, also came on the show in the last few months and, you know, talking about workforce needs going into the future, um, you know, going out to 2050 or something. And I asked in this room full of economic development folks, well, doesn't this sort of like assume that our economy will be shaped exactly the same way then that it is now? And don't we actually have the power to reshape that economy? Like, isn't that why we're all in this room together? We're not just here to like serve the economy by like sending people into it and finding more people to like shuffle off into the economy. We actually can shape it to meet the needs of the people who are here now or might be here in the future. And it was just like a wild thing to say in that context, even though it seems to me like so basic and exactly the kind of conversations we have on the show. So I think the show actually keeps me from being lonely too. And so I'm grateful for that too, Olga. Thank you. You are very welcome. Thank you, Emily. Well, I have always been grateful to guests like you, Mara, and you, Emily, for these conversations to happen, people need to keep showing up. And I'm just grateful that people keep showing up. Uh, me, Emily, guests, listeners. We are out of time for this first half. Talk about having fun. So I want to leave. We're going to hear from some underwriters, folks. But I'm going to leave listeners with a little thought. We have some gratitude cards here. Since we are talking about housing and we are talking about community, listeners, What's the best thing about the place where you live? What makes you proud of it and happy to be part of your community? Imagine you're trying to get someone to move to your city or town. What would you tell them? So that's something for listeners to ponder as we hear from some underwriters here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. to the 
second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. You can also find us on Brattleboro Community Television and or BCTV, as we also call it. We want to thank them for sharing this video version with uh, public access stations around the state. You can also find us wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. And since this is our 250th episode, I want to say a huge thank you to all our listeners who tune in, whether it's the video or the audio or the radio version. I don't always have all the data on all our listeners, but I do know from the podcast that the bulk of our listeners, yes, are in Vermont. But I also want to thank the folks from New England who tune in, and we have some regular listeners from Canada who tune in. So we want to thank you for being part of the conversation as well. Speaking of conversations, Emily Kornheiser, what do we need to remind listeners of? This is one of my favorite parts of the show every week, and I don't know why. The views and opinions. Even I know this, Emily. The views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the host and the guests, respectively, not the station, their employers, friends. And I think I like saying this so much because like this is always true. Mm-hmm. Like we are all always only speaking for ourselves. And it's these wild assumptions when someone speaks that like they're speaking for their family or they're speaking for their community, whatever it is. Um, so I'm grateful to just say it again every week. Well, thank you. I appreciate you saying it, Emily, because it's actually something that bugs me. I know it's a legalese thing we have to say for the radio station, but for me, it's, I I don't know, I think our listeners are smart enough to know we're talking for ourselves. So I'm glad you take gratitude in it and joy, Emily. Maura Collins, who is the executive director of the Vermont Housing Finance Agency, thank you for being here with us. I know we're going to shift to housing in a second, but you've been doing such a great job asking us questions and having us reflect on our work that I would love to hear one or two more. Well, I just, um, what we were just talking about made me think of it. I have a neighbor and a friend who works at the Vermont Folklife Center. Mm -hmm. And what he has really brought to my life is the appreciation for documenting Uh, experiences. And in some ways, when I listen to the Montpelier Happy Hour, that's what I'm getting from it is Mm. um, our understanding of a topic at this moment in time. And I remember early days of the pandemic, he had put out on social media a prompt to encourage anyone who was paying attention to document what our experiences were in those early days of the pandemic. And so I like, I'm a rule follower. So he told me to do it. So I'm going to do it. So I I got a, (laughs) I got a one subject notebook and I journaled in a public way, knowing that this would be read by others. I started journaling about my experience in those first few March weeks of Mm. what was happening with my family, what were my fears, what were my observations, uh, what was I doing? And then every few days, week, I don't remember the specifics, I would hand the journal to another member of my family and they would journal publicly about what their experience was. And um, I'd have to 
do some math to figure out. But right now, my kids, I know this, are 18, 15, and 12. So minus three from all those. Um, and, and my partner's my age. And so, you know, there were five of us all having very different experiences mm-hmm. with the pandemic. And we carried this on, not every week. It, it definitely slowed down once we were able to leave the house and had more interesting <laughs> activities available to us. But um, <laughs> but I, I felt very self-conscious writing down things I had been doing that day or week because it was so obvious. You know, when I talked about going to the grocery store, but that I hadn't done that in two weeks and that I wiped down the packages on the front porch with Clorox wipes before they came into the house, felt self-indulgent to discuss because obviously that's what I did that week because that's what we all were doing and that's what was happening. But now I can look back and see reflections on what my experience was that I very quickly forgot and my fears and my vulnerabilities and uh, what I was experiencing. So that is my backstory to the question of, well, actually, what I also want to say about that was that it, reading back on the journal, it it's very clear to me how ch- ever-changing the guidance was, our practices was, my comfort was. I am someone who probably started out pretty scared and then became pretty comfortable as a lot of us did. And I saw my changing opinions on things as reflective of the information I was being given at the time. And I over quote the Maya Angelou quote of, we're doing the best we can until we know better. And when we know better, we do better. And I love this quote because it gives us all grace that we're just doing the best we can Mm-hmm. And that it, it puts some responsibility on us to know better and to learn and participate in community conversations like this. And then really the onus is to act differently once once we do know better. So I guess all that is to say, are there examples where this program has changed your mind and you've walked in doing the best you can with your understanding of a dynamic, but then after one of these conversations or a series of these conversations, you really changed, not, I mean, maybe just on the margins a little bit, but like, have there been real evolutions in your thinking about things because you're going so deep with the conversations that you're daring to have with people and that now you look at things differently? Mm, I have a very obvious example. Well, Olga maybe thinks deeper. So um, many, many years ago in legislative time, I tried to ban short-term rentals, except for in very specific circumstances. And this was long enough ago that people thought I was kind of (laughs) bonkers. And I got a lot of angry email and I was really like standing alone on that little policy ledge. Um. And I, most of the emails I got from folks objecting to it really like cemented me back in my own position, which is one of the challenges with um, the way constituent email, and they weren't my constituents, they were mostly folks from out of state, but it's one of the challenges with how those kinds of emails often go. But in a conversation with you, Maura, 
you pointed out to me that short-term rentals were really just like this tip of an iceberg about folks owning homes that they were not using as primary homes in Vermont. And it really helped me see the issue in a much broader and more complex way. And I have appreciated that, especially as we've gone into sort of a phase in Vermont politics where everyone wants to ban short-term rentals. And I'm the one saying, I don't know if this is where we should be spending our time. Maybe we should be spending our time at a, like a deeper level with this stuff. And so that is the one that comes to mind the most clearly for me. Yeah. And after Olga answers, I'd be happy to um, help your listeners understand what that conversation was like, because I do think that it takes folks a minute to be like, wait, wait, isn't VHFA's mission to finance and promote safe, affordable, decent housing? And isn't short term rentals the bane of the housing markets, you know, in total? And and I can talk a little more about the numbers behind that. But Olga, I'm curious about your reflections. Mm. I. I'm trying to think of one specific episode, probably our conversation with Kelly Green, simply because I know so little about the prison system and, and I have, it's not something I have experienced firsthand. So that is probably the conversation with her where she really shared a lot of people's experiences and that, that just opened my eyes. I, I feel to some extent every conversation shifts my understanding a little bit in, in part because I just always want to know how things work. Like how do these puzzle pieces fit together? And sometimes I can get frustrated if it seems like a, a, a issue isn't moving or as a journalist, I, I know I get frustrated when it feels like I'm writing the same lead over and over and over again. <laughs> And I just want something to move and change. And so it's always helpful to me to be able to sit back and be like, okay, even though this, the image on this puzzle is driving me crazy, I at least now see how it's fitting together and why it's looking the way it is. And that helps me take some breaths, I think, sometimes when, when I'm getting impatient. Yeah, I can appreciate that impatience because... If you want to talk about rewriting a lead, how many times have we read a news article that starts with Vermont's in a housing hu crisis? <laughs> housing is unaffordable and un unobtainable for most folks, and and they're right, and that's true. And you know, in my experience, what I've seen happen uh, with the housing market, I I moved to Vermont 21 years ago and have been at VHFA that whole time, and. I started as a research analyst, so mm. I I started in the numbers, and and I really do often base my remarks in data, and I, I think it's because I um, my ego is not big enough that I think that my opinions are fact, but they are opinions, and so I um, think it's important to ground ourselves in numbers and. Um, and I think and so I could watch that for the first several years, you know, 20 years ago, we would see that the housing unaffordability in the state was was impacting people without homes, mm -hmm. people living in real abject poverty, 
there were certain housing types that were predominantly impacted, you know, renters more than homeowners, people living in manufactured homes uh, more than others because they had this dual burden of being a homeowner and having to um, take care of their home, but also being on a rented lot a lot of times in a park or community. And so um, over the 20 years though, we've seen the impact of housing, the lack of affordable housing reaching up and up and up the income strata. And now it's not just people living in poverty, but it became, you know, gosh, why can't my recent college graduate kid get out of my basement and there's nowhere for them to go. And I'm worried they're going to have to leave the state. Mm -hmm. And then it kept creeping up and up and it's like, well, wait a minute, I got a better job 20 miles away. I want to move closer to my work, but I have this long commute now because I can't find housing in you know, a few towns over. And then, you know, we've heard more recently from employers who are saying, I'm paying six figures to senior VP level executives and they can't find housing like this. Mm -hmm. And, and there's a, there's a um, judgment here. I'm not comfortable with that. All of a sudden now we're supposed to really be upset that um, the higher <laughs> income folks are impacted, but, but I will acknowledge that it is hitting more Vermonters and it's a very rare household who has not been impacted by this. If nothing else, then the 72% of Vermonters who own their home, mm -hmm. we know that, um, let me get this right, 60% nationally of homeowners have an interest rate of 4% or less. And so the majority of Vermonters own their homes and the majority of those have a 4% interest rate. They're locked in, man. They don't have the same job opportunities that they had three years ago because they can't move and lose that interest rate because their home would be unaffordable if they had to get rid of that mortgage and change it for another mortgage. And so it is true that the impact of the housing market is impacting so many more people. And that does feel like a story that we just keep telling and telling and telling and hoping for a different outcome. So for you, Mara, given that housing is such a huge topic right now, what do you feel is being left out of the conversation that people just are blinded to or they're just not bringing up? Like where, where are the gaps, I guess I could say? You know, well, I work in housing, so I feel like I do have a responsibility to monitor not all the conversations, but, you know, a lot of the dialogue around housing, again, whether it be age, you know, elderly housing, age specific housing, family housing, rentals, owners, all this tiny homes and everything in between. Um, I guess what I would say, not that's being left out, but that I see most often is the um the cognitive bias that there must be a silver bullet to this problem. Yes. Mm -hmm. And people have their, their favorite topic. And I, I just gave a presentation a week ago and I'm thinking of doing something for the legislature. Um, if I, if I could, uh, where to talk about, I put a screen up. You can imagine some of us go to conferences where you can vote on your phone and mm -hmm. you see the results show up on the screen in front of you. 
And I put up the top 10 causes of what's causing the housing problem in Vermont. And uh, from memory, it involved um, Act 250, statewide permitting. Um, and, and you had to pick the three that you knew were the top three. Um, local planning and zoning, which, which brings in nimbyism into that one, the high cost of housing, the dramatic unprecedented rise in interest rates over a short amount of time, um, short-term rentals was one of them, um, and the lack of building enough housing. Um, low wages? Do so you have low wages? Uh, uh, yep, yep. Chronic. Um, the, the income wage growth wasn't sustainable. Uh, the the increased number and acuity of mental health and or substance use disorder and those sort of um, mm. social related conditions that um, have means that people need more. And, and I went from there and not surprisingly, this was um, a group of all um, CEOs of companies across Vermont. And when I laid out the 10 reasons, there were some that had more votes than others, but there weren't any that didn't have any votes. Everyone had something. And I then went through the presentation with one slide per each of these topics and got to pretend like I was Oprah and saying like, if you chose short-term rentals, you're right. And if you chose the lack of wage growth, you're right. And if you chose <laughs> nimbyism, you're right. And if you chose the increasing interest rates, you're right. And I had one chart to illustrate on each of them that they were right mm -hmm. because they're all contributing factors. Mm -hmm. And it is more complex than our silver bullet, single favorite pet project. And so when we, oh, one of them was all the out-of-state movers. Like when we can other people and we can set up a narrative in our head that there is this one reason for a problem, we should all get suspicious quickly. And uh, because it's more complex than that. And I find that nothing gets people more frustrated with VHFA in the social media markets than when we launch a new program. Hmm. Because when we have a press release yes. that says that we are doing something around home ownership, and the racial homeownership gap and trying to um, have our uh, the black Vermonters have equal access to homeownership as white Vermonters clearly do. We are criticized for why are we working on homeownership? Don't we know we have a homelessness problem and the hotels and motels are closing in a few months? And when we talk about service enriched housing and how we're supporting the state on a new permanent supported housing Medicaid pilot and what our role is in getting the word out by people with lived experience to participate. We're asked why we're not doing more to support longstanding renters in the state who, you know, can't save up enough for a down payment and, and on and on. And so all of that is illustrative of the complexity of what's going on with housing and and the solutions have to be all the things. Yes. And I am so, I mean, this is always true. And like, for whatever reason, the last two weeks, it was like particularly the theme of every meeting I went to, where I felt like every meeting, all I said was, we can and need to do more than one thing at a time. Mm -hmm. The world is a complex place and complex solutions are needed to solve 
whatever issues are. And it was just like every single meeting I needed to say it. And I don't, well, gosh, it's just really frustrating that it needs to be said over and over again. And I'm, you know, maybe if we were having a therapist on here, we could get into like what it is that is so comforting to people about thinking there's just this one silver bullet. And maybe you're right about that. Like it enables othering and that makes it easier for people to face a problem. I don't know. It's mind boggling though. Well, to bring it back to the short-term rental conversation, when I put that stat up, it shows, you know, VHFA doesn't look at all short-term rentals. We only look at when an entire unit is available. I don't care if a room's for rent. That's not Mm -hmm. truly housing. So an entire unit has to be available and it has to be available for 30 days straight. So if you're just renting it out one weekend a month, it's not available to my folks who I'm trying to house. So Mm -hmm. So for those where it's a full unit and it's available for 30 days in a row, we know that since June of 2017, the number of short-term rentals in Vermont has now gone up by 72%. Wow. So it is true that the number of short-term rentals is exploding. We're just under 12,000 right now. It's 11,700 something. And so that is what's happening with short-term rentals across the state. At the same time, that means that short-term rentals went from 2% of our housing stock to now 3.6% of our housing stock. Still not the majority of our homes. When I say that 72% of us own our homes, you know, 3% being short-term rentals is having an impact, but not to the extent that sometimes we think. And when you compare the short-term rentals to our long-standing history of having being a, a strong state for uh, vacation homes, that's seventeen percent of our housing stock are vacation homes, and a lot of those count the short-term rentals, frankly. And a lot of those are deer camps and uninsulated and camps that don't have um, year-round septic and maybe lakefront property and things like that. So that goes back to what Emily was saying earlier about the nuance with the numbers and the nuance with the conversation. And as we get closer to probably being at time here, I'll just say that that's why I appreciate these conversations where you do take the time to dig into the numbers, the perspectives you have experts on who are working in this area and going beyond the headlines and able to talk about these really important things as a community and as Vermont because that's the only way we're going to move beyond this silver bullet thinking and really appreciate all that we all have to do to address these big problems. Thank you, Maura. Um, We are nearly out of time, but this is a question that came up in a conversation with John Walters recently. And we talked about it, but I'd love to hear your perspective on it. You know, he did point out that we have a housing crisis and yet we have a population number that hasn't really shifted much. And so that's kind of a huh moment. So I'd love to hear your perspective on how those two things can exist at the same time, a population that hasn't changed much and a housing crisis. Yeah, you're naming one of the 10 things I forgot to mention, which is our shrinking <laughs> household size, which forgive me for being a data nerd at heart, But your population can remain relatively flat. But if you're if the number of people in each house shrinks, 
you need more homes. Mm. And so we know that nationally, going back to 1960, that the household size has declined by 25%. Mm. And so if the population of America never changed since 1960, we still would need 25% more homes now than we did before. And why are household sizes shrinking? Well, it's because our kids are postponing partnering up or marrying for longer. And so they're living as individuals for longer periods of time. People are less likely to stay in abusive or just unthriving relationships. Absolutely. We know that the divorce rate has gone up since 1960. And so, um, and as the economy does better, we see that divorces increase as people have the means to be able to make the the housing choices they want. We're living healthier, longer lives. And that means that uh, once kids move out of the house, either a couple or an individual will live um, independently for longer. And so for all these reasons, and we're having fewer kids, and with all of this, we are uh, having smaller household sizes for, and that means that we need more homes. So even if we stay at 650,000 Vermonters for the next 20 years, if the household sizes continue to shrink the way they have, Vermont's household size has shrunk by almost 10% just since 1990. So even if our population hasn't changed since 1990, we need 10% more homes right there. Mm -hmm. And you add to that then the homes that we have to repair and replace due to poor condition and the very old housing stock that we have in this state. And all of a sudden you start seeing why there are such needs for housing investments. And data check, we actually do have more Vermonters than we did. Our population has grown. Exactly. And for all of those who say that we should close the doors, as if we could, in Vermont (laughs) and, and put up walls around our borders and say 30 years from now, we should still have 650,000 folks in this state and that the carrying capacity of the state, we've hit it and we should not grow. That is fine, but do not fool yourself into thinking that a lack of growing housing opportunities doesn't mean a very changed Vermont Mm -hmm. because there may be 650,000 people living here, but they're not the 650,000 of us who are here today. Because of supply and demand, if we keep the uh, not growing our housing, we will have increased demand and we are going to become a playground for the rich and famous. We will be um, where folks come to recreate, mm-hmm. but the, we will lose we will lose the agriculture sector. We will lose the service economy. We will lose the people who make Vermont wonderful and we will become a destination to come and recreate as opposed to being the home of industrious people that I think it is today. And so it's actually that we need to change so that we can keep things the same. Thank Love you. That. Thank you. That is an amazing note to end on. We are out of time, unfortunately, but I want to thank Emily for celebrating our 250th episode with us. I want to thank Laura Collins from the Vermont Housing Finance Agency for celebrating with us today. I want to remind folks that VHFIA has a website called housingdata.org and it's amazing, so good. amazing data. But if you go, I asked, I 
encourage people to check it out because what it really talks about at the core of all the numbers is what do our communities look like and how are they functioning based on who can live where and who needs to commute and who can, because they don't need to commute so much, have more time to volunteer in their community, that type of thing. So I just encourage everyone to check out housingdata.org. Maura, where else can people find more information about the work you do? Well, VHFA's website is vhfa.org, and that's where you'd find out about our first-time homebuyer programs. We have grants for first-generation homebuyers, thanks to support from the legislature, and we have other down payment assistance loans. And so you can get up to $30,000 to help buy your first home if you're a first-generation buyer, but $15,000 even if you're not a first-gen buyer. We also have a multitude of programs for developers and builders of affordable rental housing. So that's we don't actually own and manage housing ourselves. We're the bank in the background that provides the mortgages and tax credits to create the housing. But those are critical partners that are meeting the housing needs across the state. Thank you. Emily, where can folks find information on you? Folks can go to emilycornheiser.org and find links to all of the different ways to contact me, as well as some past newsletters or signing up from future newsletters. Thank you. And as always, the Montpelier Happy Hour is on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station, every Friday at 2, rebroadcasted on Wednesday mornings. You can find us wherever you find your podcasts. And I'm just going to leave folks again with our little gratitude cards. Another thought, since we're talking about community and housing, is where does your community or your neighborhood need a little TLC? Where are there pieces of trash that need to be picked up? Where are there flower beds that need attention? Where are there neighbors who need checking on? And just remind folks that uh, wherever you put a little TLC, it, it does pay off. So have a great weekend, everyone. And we look forward to seeing you again. Happy 250th. Yay!